Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 12th, 2018, and you know what day it is. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Uh, with me, as always, batting cleanup as the anchor uh, on, on this. Uh, and I've got a, a bunch of cool stuff for you today. i got a question for Nick Ferguson on using hay as mulch. I got some stuff on bee smokers and fuels from the bee whisperer himself, Michael Jordan. Building the Prepper's Pantry from Chef Keith Snow. Dealing with TMJ from Doc Bones. And the right intervals for your oil change from expert panel member Charles Sandville. And dealing with eczema from Gary Collins. And then I have for you, as an anchor segment, two cryptocurrencies currently on my radar that I am kind of bullish on. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into your uh, questions for the council today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one is a new sponsor, ButcherBox.com. Of course, uh, I've got you guys a hell of a sweet deal if you're MSB members. Basically, it comes out to ten bucks off for the rest of your life, or if you want to, you can make that free bacon for life as long as you're a ButcherBox customer. ButcherBox is a great company. You select your items, or you can take a pre-selected box and once a month or once every other month depending on your delivery frequency they ship a box of meat to your house who the hell doesn't want a box of awesome meat shipped to their house I guess vegans and vegetarians would be about the only ones um, let me tell you last night we actually ate meat from butcher box it is just some of the best quality meat I've ever had uh, I did a New York not a New York strip a ribeye thick cut ribeye last night from butcher box for Dorothy and I and it was called a reverse sear check this out you put it in the oven at a fairly low temperature, and you put it in the oven dead cold. So the, cold, the oven's cold, the meat's cold. And as the oven comes up to temperature, it brings the meat up to temperature with it. You keep checking it with your meat thermometer as you start to figure out, like, if I set my oven to 350, how long will it take to move a steak of this size up to, let's say, 125 degrees, where it's still very rare. Uh, it, it's almost like using your oven in a sous vide type way because you're bringing the temperature of the meat constantly with surrounding temperature. And then when you get it close to where you want it, you know, you get it out of the oven and finish it like in a carbon steel skillet or a cast iron skillet with like a good helping of bacon grease and really bring, and then you bring it to that temperature you want to serve it at. You know, for me, that's about 140 degrees. You let it rest. It is just fantastic. And man, the meat quality is just amazing from ButcherBox. You might want to check them out, ButcherBox.com. And if you're an MSB member, make sure you get your discount, which is 10 bucks off uh, your first order and free bacon, and then 10 bucks off all orders for life, which you can make into free bacon. More info is available in your MSB account. Next up today, JM Bullion. You know, I'm doing an anchor segment today with cryptocurrency. And I think since um, I've been on the cryptocurrency train now for about two years, people have like, you know, questioned like, okay, if you're putting money into cryptocurrency, does that mean you're not putting it into silver and gold? And the answer is absolutely not. Silver and gold have their place in your wealth management of your portfolio. And I have the exact same recommendation that I've been giving for nine and a half years on the air now for silver and gold. Five to ten percent of your net wealth into silver and gold. And you decide, you know, if you want to do two, that's fine. If you want to do one, I don't care. Well, do 20, you didn't really think about it because, you know, there's other ways you can better leverage your wealth. 
But the beauty of silver and gold is it's transportable and it's anonymous, and it can go anywhere, and it can be handed down to your heirs. And if you do that the right way, you don't even need to put that on like one of them wills or nothing like that. Like, this is your box when I'm gone, and this is your box. You see what I'm saying? There's really nothing else I know of that can do that in a completely anonymous way. It's easily tradable. It's got value to it. It's never been worth zero. But I'll tell you what you don't ever want to do. When you're buying gold and silver, why the hell would you pay more for it than you have to? Well, if you do business with JM Bullion, you're going to pay some of the best prices on the market to get the same silver. That's the whole point of silver and gold. It's all the same. It's all the same. You know, As long as you're dealing with a reputable company, it's all the same. So you want to pay the best price and get the best service you can. You'll find that at jmbullion.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 90 in our walk through history, 90 AD that is, and we have a savvy politician contributed by David Vern at tspwiki.com. The consuls, the Roman Republic's head of state, had become a ceremonial position that was only held for a few months. It was more prestigious to be one of the two consuls at the beginning of the year, and Domitian named himself as one of the two and chose an old senator named Nerva. This choice confused many because Nerva wasn't well known, because he preferred to stay behind the scenes and not gain influence openly. In other words, Nerva was freaking smart, all right? He hadn't been, he, he had been a member of Nero's inner circle. But amazingly, he wasn't killed during the year of four emperors because he backed Vespian early on. This meant he became a member of Vespian's inner circle. It is believed that Nerva had given Domitian an early warning of the Cemeterius revolt. And the consulship was a reward. My take by David Verne. Domitian was in dire need of allies he could trust, and Nerva was one of the only members of the upper class he could trust. Half the Senate was plotting against Domitian, while the other half was worried about being accused of plotting, which resulted in execution and seizure of property. Nerva was able to stay within the inner circle of the emperors from Nero to Domitian by staying loyal to the emperor and by not gaining fame or notoriety was able to survive if things went downhill for the reigning emperor. And I, I think there's a, a big lesson there. The people that have the most power today, you don't know their names. The people that have the most wealth today, you don't know their names. They are nervous. Whether they're political or financial, the people with the real power, you don't know their names. Now, I just keep, every time we stay in this, 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 you know, this time period, it's, it's really, Rome is the best record of history that we have for this time period. We have, you know, solid information about it. And that's why we focus on it here. And, and then, again, you know, it's a duocracy. David Verne likes the Roman uh, history. So he's the one that's actually putting content up now. But as we keep going, I just keep thinking, if I were in Rome at this time, I would not have wanted to be emperor. I would not have wanted to be a senator. These are just two ways to get dead. So you have to ask yourself, who really wanted this kind of power at the time? You're willing to risk being killed. If you, you're about to see eventually Domitian's head roll, and you're going to see over the next 20 years a lot of heads roll of emperors. Who wants that kind of power when the risk for simply having it is death? You know the answer: psychopaths. And that's the that's the case today. Still, sure, we don't kill senators and congressmen and presidents in America, but we destroy them. We destroy them in the court of public opinion. Their lives get ruined if they make the wrong mistake at the wrong time. They get slaughtered, still. But yet, they fight, 
and fight and fight for that power. And the reason you always wonder, well, why don't the really good people run for office? Really good people don't want to tell other people how to live their lives. And they're not willing to sacrifice who and what they are for the power to do so. History does not always repeat itself, but it always seems to rhyme. My thoughts by Jack Spirico. With that, before we get started on your questions, let me remind you uh, that you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do to learn more about it is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great uh, vendors and supporting vendors, uh, including, like I said today, Butcher Box, Jam Bullion. I get you guys a discount on silver and gold. Who the hell else has a discount for you on silver and gold? I'm serious. Like they, it's just a razor thin margin industry. No one gets a discount on you guys do as a member. And guess what? I have another awesome new sponsor and MSB supporter that I'll be announcing on Monday. You want to see who it is? Do you want to see who it is early? Go to the survivalpodcast.com and you'll see the banners for all the sponsors. Scroll all the way to the bottom, look at the last banner underneath Bobwell's Nursery. That's who it is. So I'm going to suggest if you're MSB, you don't buy something there until Monday because I got a cool ass discount coming on a cool ass product. And if you've noticed, 2018 has become the year of major value add to the MSB. So far in 2018, I have brought you ButcherBox, GunAdapters.com, a new big one coming Monday, and there's another one already in the MSB that because of all these big ones coming out, I haven't said much about, but if you log in and go to benefits, you'll see who it is. They're right there with a big red new next to their name. We'll be telling you who those guys are next week with an official launch as well. That's four. Four new vendors to the MSB in 2018. It is freaking January 12th. I'm just getting started. We are going to make 2018 the year that I put more value in the MSB than I have, I think, in the last eight years combined. That's my goal. So consider joining, consider supporting the work we do, and consider all of the benefits that you get by being a member. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first question for the expert council. This one is for Nick Ferguson on using hay as mulch. Nick, take it away, man. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com with a question from Molly, and her email reads, Can hay be used as a compost slash mulch for the garden? Details, we have been building soil in our two-year-old 50 by 50 garden. We were given a roll of hay, so we spread it over the garden this fall so that it could naturally compost down by spring. The problem... Once we dumped it in the garden and started spreading it, we noticed hundreds if not thousands of little seeds. We don't want to grow a hay field, but it was too late to get it out. My thoughts, if I let it rot down all winter, then I can cover the whole garden in thick black plastic in early spring to kill the seeds. I thought I could cut out areas of the plastic that I want to plant in, then cover the entire area in mulch after planting. Did we totally mess up by putting this hay down? Thanks, Molly. Um, so thanks for the great question. So the short answer is hopefully you didn't totally mess up. I can't I can't tell you whether or not you did um, because I don't know what kind of seeds and I don't know what kind of hay that is. I don't know your area. So I'm going to do my best to get you some good info. 
Right. I live somewhere that the hay consists mostly of coastal Bermuda hay, and that stuff is incredibly difficult to get rid of once it's growing in a space. And actually, the way you grow coastal Bermuda is to cut the hay, spread it where you want it to grow, and pretty soon that's what you have, a Bermuda hay field. It'll root from the nodes. So if you look at the grass and examine the length of the stem, you'll see that it's a slender stalk, and then it swells out to kind of a belly and then reduces back to a slender stalk. And that swelling point is called an internode. And that part contains undifferentiated cells that can morph into leaves, stems, or roots. And when it comes into contact with moist soil, it roots. So you can spread the stuff through putting those nodes in contact with soil. And you may have hay that was full of grass seed or other weed seeds. So if it's some other species of hay, then I'm not very well versed in the plant morphology or physiology of you know, common hay species, so I can't give any specific advice. What I can do is talk about some generalized solutions that may help you, and one in particular that I think will be most useful for you. And with luck, you may not have a problem at all. I know Ruth Stout gardened in Connecticut and used a method where she just put hay down thickly over her whole gardening area, and whenever something green showed up that wasn't a garden veggie, she just grabbed a big armful of hay and dropped it on top of the green stuff. And it smothered it and kept it thickly mulched. It worked fantastically for her. Lots of people have had a lot of success with that. I'm actually trialing this method um, using Bermuda hay this upcoming year in a space that I'd be happy with growing grass. Um, but if it works, then I'll be happy growing veggies. So I'll be doing this just to let you guys know if it works even with Bermuda grass hay. I'm a bit leery of using this method where I live because of fire ants and because deep mulch will often hide a massive fire ant mound and you won't know that they're there until you step on the spot and all of a sudden there's five billion fire ants stinging your leg from crotch to toes and it's quite unpleasant to say the least. So there's there's hope that you may be able to just roll with it and add more hay to keep it thick, like I think one to two feet thick, if I remember her method correctly. She keeps it on there really thick. Um, if that's wrong, let me know in the comments. You mentioned black plastic in your email. Using black plastic to lay on the soil surface will heat the plastic, and through physical contact will heat the soil, and to a lesser degree, the hot plastic will heat the air and warm the space between the plastic and the soil. But this process is called occultation or occultation it's the method of darkening the area in question which normally means using a tarp or plastic film and what it does it keeps the soil moist warms the soil making for perfect germination conditions for seeds that require darkness to germinate and there's a lot of seeds that require light to germinate so given enough time this will kill grasses because they'll just exhaust their starch reserves in the roots and they'll just kind of starve to death but it takes a long time to do this and you may have to leave the plastic on for months on end or a whole year which will take up your growing season another option is to use a method called solarization and this is the one that i'm a much bigger fan of so to solarize your garden space you'll need clear plastic and i really prefer the uv stabilized 92 percent light transmission greenhouse plastic that you can order from a greenhouse supply store online. It's not very expensive and they're normally rated for like a four-year lifespan, but if you take care of it and you don't put holes in it and you use it only for solarization, which isn't going to be for the whole growing season, then really I'd be surprised if you got less than double its you know, rated lifespan. So to solarize, you just clean up the area to be treated, 
You wet the whole area thoroughly. You want wet soil because it's going to get hot under there, and wet heat will kill faster than dry heat. So make it wet. And then you'll need to weigh the edges of the plastic down to make for a good seal. You don't want air blowing underneath this plastic. You want it to trap all the heat under there. So you could dig a trench around the whole area just shorter than the edge of the plastic so that the plastic falls in the trench and gets and you just backfill with the removed soil. And that holds down all the edges. Or you could weigh it down all the way around with scrap lumber or rocks. You know, whatever you choose, just make sure air isn't able to pass from outside to under the plastic. You want it to heat up like a greenhouse under there. And that's the way it works. It allows the sun's rays to penetrate and heat up the soil and plants, and then it traps the heat under the plastic, and it gets way hotter than black plastic would. Just imagine sitting in a lawn chair inside one of two tents during a sunny day, a black one or a clear one. If you think you'd rather sit in a clear plastic tent on a summer day, then you've never been inside a greenhouse. The black plastic one would be hot, but the clear one would fry you like an egg. So that's our goal, to fry those weeds and grasses and kill them. So you have some options. The solarization is going to kill more weeds and grasses. And what you'll want to do is stick, a, you know, just one of those cheapo analog thermometers, you know, just the dial ones, not the digital ones, in the middle of the plastic sheet area to monitor the soil temps. You can stick it right through the plastic or just stick it in the soil before you put the plastic on top. And you'll just kind of have to knock the uh, condensation off of it. And generally, if you're over 140 degrees, you've killed pretty much all the pathogens and plants, as well as the seeds. But if you can get up to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, that is perfect. And if you wanted to, you could do the whole area, but it's probably going to take about a month, maybe two months in the spring because you have to get the, the soil up to temperature. And that might make you miss out on the early growing season because you'll be solarizing for it probably at least a month. If you do it during the summer, it won't take as long so you'll just have to determine what you want to get out of it. So that might make you miss that planting window. So if you're concerned about that, then what you could do is half the garden with clear plastic and just leave it on there until you hit your critical temps. And then the other half, you could double down with the hay and hope it smothers out the weeds and weed seeds. So I think if you go with the second option, you'll learn more about what works best for your situation and still get you some garden produce in the early season. If you plant into the heavy mulch, just pull it back to expose the soil and plant into good soil. If you have questions, head over to www.homegrownliberty.com and ask in the comments section or head to my Patreon page where I'm active answering questions every day and ask away. And the address for my Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty. Or you can email me a question directly to nick at homegrownliberty.com. All right, guys, do good things. All right, folks, let me just give you a little a funny story, Jack story. When Nick was talking about fire ants, um, it involves Jack walking um, several hundred yards across his property with no pants. Uh, <laughs> I was out in my west pasture. Um, I guess a couple of years ago, and I found one of these uh, fire ant nests the way that Nick's described. Now, it wasn't from uh, hay mulch, but uh, it was just in a place where you wouldn't know it was there, and I ended up standing in it, and uh, by the time, you know, the, the, I don't know how fire ants communicate exactly with their chemicals, but they clearly are like, 
Okay, I'm not going to bite them because they're not because I know this is a mass attack and not enough of us are there yet. And like once they get into a point, like somebody sends out a signal, bite, they start biting. So I look down, I feel like a couple bites on my leg, and I have fire ants up my pant leg, on my pants on the outside, in the inside, and I'm wearing long pants, you know. And I didn't even think twice. I just <laughs> I just dropped my freaking pants and start beating them off my legs and walk back to the house. On another note, this is a good reason to have comfrey around all the time. Um, if you get bit by fire ants and you immediately, I mean within a couple minutes or less, take just comfrey leaves, mash them up, and start rubbing them on those fire ants, the, the majority of them will not break out into that secondary horrible thing that fire ants do. Um, they are just villainous little bastards, and I want them all to die. So, yes, be careful with them, and good advice from Nick on using hay as mulch. Next up, I have a bit from Michael Jordan on some advice with bee smokers and fuel for them. Hey, this is your buddy Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. So we're into January, and people are like, there's not much going on. What are some things they can start doing? Well, a friend of mine in Colorado asked, what about smokers and fuels? Hey, right now is a great time to work on your smokers, cleaning out the bellows, fixing them, cleaning out all the soot inside of them, getting ready. Right, but let's talk about smokers, fuel, and how to light them some bucks, right? I mean, a smoker is a simple device for burning fuel in an environment that's starved with oxygen until you pump the bellow, providing a burst of mild air, causing a burst of flame and smoke, encapsulating it in a tube, and slowly rolling it out through a funneled opening. Most experienced beekeepers have some source of fuel that they use regularly. Pine needles are a common favorite. I personally use wild sage. I think making smudge sticks is very good and the smell's great. Dried leaves and indigenous trees are less favored. They smoke too quickly and they require constant replenishment. Cotton of any kind is a great fuel. It could be uh, old, worn out blue jeans, t-shirts, cotton liners from gin mills, uh, any source like that. Uh, corn cobs doused in kerosene have worked well for years, uh, but it's a hard fuel and it smells bad and it's not really great for the bees. Wood pellets make a good fuel, but there's a cost associated with it, and they're very hard to light and to keep lit. I got to read some works from Marvin Packer when I was in Turkey. In Egypt during the summer of 1996, with the VOCA program, Marvin Packer made smoker fuel. He made great smoker fuel, using something that I love, incense. Taking cardboard about 3 to 5 inches wide and about 12 inches long, the corrugated cardboard was then put with beeswax on one side laying denim and beeswax on the other side laying burlap, making a corrugated cardboard with fabric on each side. This was then tightly rolled up to look like a tuna can with fringe on the side. Dumping incense powder in the corrugation, this tuna can was then dropped in a smoker, lit, and then puffed, giving a great smell and burning and smoldering for a very long time. 
using incense in the corrugation gives a great smell and helps train the bees. Making these small smoker plugs or pucks over the winter months is a great way to get going in your beekeeping. When we talk about uh, smokers and stuff and fuel, the most readily available starting fuel is a sheet of paper. You know, it burns fast, easy to light. But I have found that if you use Ignito instant fuel starting packets, there's like 20 of them to a box, you'll light your smoker first try every time. Made of an organic compound and contains no dangerous lighter fluid, it leaves no smelly chemical and, contain, and will not contaminate the bees. It burns clean, leaving no greasy residue. And if you have one of those burners for like making cakes and quim brulees or getting yourself like a torch for soldering, lighting a smoker is super easy. I think one of the coolest ways of smoking bees is the Play-Doh and incense stick technique. By placing Play-Doh on the side of a hive, you can poke holes in the incense with incense sticks, and when it gets hard, you have an incense holder on the side of your beehive. Easy to light, incense is made to smoke. By placing them into the little grooves in the Play-Doh, it blows a constant low smoke over the hive constantly while you work with it. Placing four to five sticks in the Play-Doh makes a sweet smell drifting over the hive. Some tips. A heat protection cage is needed around your smoker. You don't want to get burned or burn any wood or anything around you. It needs to come with a mounting hook so it can hang on the hive so it can cool easy and it's easy for one-handed use. Key point, one-handed use. You're going to have gloves, you're going to be sticky. Make sure you get a smoke where the bellows can be used between your hands. Check the width on your on your bellow. You may even have to shorten your bellow to make it so you have to so it'll fit in your hand. Also make sure it's a good stainless steel durable quality smoker. You don't want anything to catch on fire and burn it down. You know, especially in my area. In my area you want to use the smoker sparingly, allowing prevailing wind to drift the smoke over the bees. Now, a dome top smoker is awesome. Man Lake makes the HD540 stainless steel smoker with guard. I think it's the deep one. It's a very nice. A Prelix, A-G-R-A-L-O-G-I-X, B smoker, has the oxygenizer fuel tank. It's just a screen that you put in that you put your fuel in. It allows air to go through the screen better and easier. Um, in Germany... Uh, typically used in house bees and in barns like in the Slovak highs. There was the Imkerfeff, I-M-K-E-R-P-F-E-I-F-E. It's also known as the beekeeper's pipe. It used the coarse tobacco and herbal smoking mixtures, and instead of rather sucking it in, you blew it out. Like I said, in my area, we're getting even smaller winds, uh, dry burn, man, it destroys everything, liquid smoke. It's been popular over the most recent years. It's very effective. Has a, It comes in a little packet. It mixes down like 1 to 16 mix dilution. You put in a spray trigger bottle, you spray it, it masks the smell, and it's similar to normal smoke. 
it's it's easy for swarm controls and using for basic checks. I wouldn't use it though to dig around the hive and do like a honey removal. So I just want to give you some quick tips. I was asked some questions about what to do in January. I think a good time is a good clean out your smokers, build some smoker fuel, and get to using it. Break it out, light it, see how it lights, see how often you got to puff with it. This is your chance to really use it, get to handling on it, and try some different stuff. Heck, one of the good ones people like to use is just using a little sugar water and spray the bees. A good two to one to three to one mix, three parts sugar, one part water. It's thick, allows the bees to clean each other, keeps them from flying, makes them kind of happy. But remember, the smokers for personal protective equipment, it's made to overrun the smell of the alarm pheromone of the bees, and in times of emergency, a smoker may need to be used. This is Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Man, hope you guys are having a great new year. Buying your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Starting your own little cottage businesses to sell that product. And helping your fellow man. Because this year, we're going to need a lot of help. Good stuff for Mr. Jordan there. Next, I have a question for Chef Keith Snow on building out that prepper pantry. Chef, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and Food Storage Feast. I want to answer Stephanie's question about stocking up on long-term storable food and when is the time to do it. Now, this is an interesting question because sometimes in her situation, she's the one that wants to um, spend some money and uh, build up a, a long-term pantry because they really don't have anything at this moment and they've been meaning to do it and all that. But her husband um, doesn't think it's, you know, the economy is good, the stock market's reaching all these highs, and he doesn't want to spend money that could go into the stock market or whatever on storable food. Now, in a lot of cases, it's the opposite, where you've got the husband who wants to do the prepping and, you know, get those extra couple thousand rounds of ammo and maybe um, storable foods or a generator, whatever it might be, and the wife is pushing back. This is an opposite situation, and that does occur. So, uh, Stephanie, here's the deal. Um, you, you have to talk to your husband about this. Just because Donald Trump's in office and the stock market is making highs and you know manufacturing jobs are coming back and things seem to be going well, that doesn't mean that you wait to you know, take care of your emergency food because that's kind of crazy. And think of it this way. A few years ago, when you couldn't find any ammo, for example, people were going on eBay and paying 75 and and $100 for a box of, um, you know, 500 rounds of 22 long rifle. And you couldn't get anything. And that's when, you know, demand is, you know, supply is down. Demand is going crazy. It's the same thing with, you know, silver. It rallied to around $50 a few years back and I mean I was watching it it was going up and up and people were buying the heck out of it as it was going up and that's generally a, a fool's errand I mean if you look at any successful investor um, I immediately think of a dude like Jim Rogers he doesn't buy his um, commodities or metals or um, dollars or you know currencies when they're making highs when they're going down and people are you know, off the sector and they don't think it's a good thing. That's when he's buying it all up and waiting for it to come back. He buys things that are undervalued. And this is the case with anything in life. You don't want to be buying things, um, when they're, when they're making highs. Now in 
for survival food and long-term storable food. Trump's in office now and um, things are going well and, and that industry is, you know, they're, they're not doing well. I mean, the moment he got elected, I work in the storable food industry, so I've got some insider contacts with some of the bigger companies. The moment Trump got elected, <clears throat> the uh, sales dropped off fast and, and every time the stock market makes a new high, sales continue to drop for these companies. A lot of them have gone out of business and the ones that are still strong um, are selling with really good deals. So if there's any time to be building up a pantry, uh, now is the time. Now, you know, look at some of the economic factors. I mean, we're still $20 trillion in debt. There's, you know, I don't know, what is it, a quadrillion of derivatives still out there. There's a bubble in every sector that we have, you know, um, car loans, college loans, um, the stock market, you know, everything is reaching record highs. And that, you know, and we're long overdue for a recession. Typically in this country, we would have a recession of between every four to seven years. We're well beyond that now. Of course, we all remember the, the big one back in 08, but we're well beyond the average time for a recession. And, and as you know, the Federal Reserve has pumped a lot of money into the system, keeping things up. I mean, globally, um, I know this really isn't a financial answer, but this, I just want your husband to understand that. Um, just because things look great now, that's not a reason to, you know, leave your pantry empty. And a lot of folks out there have nothing in their pantry. They might have a day's worth of food. I know plenty of parents that have two and three kids and you look in their, their house and I do it. I mean, I'm a little, I'm a little nosy. I'm over there. I'm like, dude, so what, what are you going to do if, you know, if there was a, a storm? Um, and I have a friend in Florida who, was telling me about fist fights at the gas station, you know, in a very modern society where, you know, when Hurricane Matthew came by, it was not a pretty picture. No gas, no food, everything out. And, you know, and I was pestering him as that storm came because I know he doesn't keep any food. I said, you need to go and buy some food. Oh, I know we're going to get to it. I'm like, no, dude, you need to get to it today. You have two kids, you know, they're, they're friends with my kids. Get to the store and buy something. So don't ever, um, you know, wait to, build security into your life. And particularly when the prices are down, this is the time to do it. I mean, you can go on to a site like beprepared.com. That's emergency essentials, which has got terrific quality food. And uh, you can get on their mailing list and they're sending deals all the time, 50% off. I mean, you name it, free shipping. They're, they're aggressively selling their food because Times are tough right now for that industry. So this is the time to do it, Stephanie. Now, what to buy is the other part of your question. And let me first tell you what not to buy. Back in 2008 and 9, as I sort of came into this space, I, um, I was, I had a lot of things in my pantry, but most of them were sort of exotic type ingredients. So we could have eaten, you know, some good food for a few days, but we didn't have much either. And when I went out looking on the internet, I found a lot of these companies that had these, you know, ready-made kits and boxes, you know, rubber-made things with 72 servings and this one had 150. It was a three-month supply. Whatever it was, it was all these type of you cut the pouch open and you pour this orange-colored um, powdery stuff into a pot with water. You bring it to a boil and you cook it for 25 minutes and it's supposed to turn into food. It's not freeze-dried. It's all like dehydrated, spray-dried powders. The stuff is crazy high in salt and you know they're going to tell you, oh, it's non-GMO. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's non-GMO or organic. It's still crap. 
I mean, a bag of powdery, you know, spray dried fake stuff is not really food. And that's what a lot of people go out and buy because, you know, it's packaged well, it's sold with a lot of fear behind it and people, you know, panic and they buy it at the wrong time. And, and then the prospect of eating it comes. And I have tested these foods. These companies have sent all, all this stuff to me in the past. <clears throat> and, you know, I tried to get behind some of it and, um, Really, I just could not, you can't stomach the food. I mean, it's just horrible stuff. So those bags of powdery things and soup mixes and all that, that's not food. I mean, and it's not even fast. That's the other thing that I, that kills me is people think, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's for an emergency. Yeah, you're still going to need to cook it for almost 30 minutes, you know, using energy. That's no, that's no bargain. So what I would suggest is, First of all, doing this now is a good time because, like I said, the prices are down. So I would buy a selection of freeze-dried foods and, um, you know, fruits. You could buy, if you eat meat, you can buy some of their meats. Um, a lot of the vegetables are excellent and put those away. Then I would turn towards a very inexpensive um, wonder ingredients, in my opinion, like rice and beans and um potato flakes and whole wheat berries, um, oats, you know, cans of tuna fish, peanut butter. These things um, you can get anywhere. You don't need to be buying it from a special company. There's usually no shipping involved. You go to your local club store. Um, a lot of supermarkets, particularly this time of year, will have you know, they call them tray discounts, so you can get canned ingredients. And there's nothing wrong with um, certain canned ingredients like beans. I mean, we keep a very large selection of canned beans, um, pinto beans, black beans, garbanzo beans, kidney beans. Um, we have canned tomatoes in many different forms, whole plum tomatoes. We have some crushed tomatoes, petite diced tomatoes. We keep mushrooms in cans, artichoke hearts, uh, all different types of canned food. And then we keep a selection of sauces and ingredients like, you know, chili garlic paste uh, or, excuse me, black bean garlic um, paste or sauce. We keep soy sauce. We keep hot sauce, fish sauce, all these type of things, curry, um, a very large selection of spices, dried spices. We keep, I mentioned tuna fish. We keep lots of different, um, like hard oats and wheat berries, all those things. And those are packed in mylar and buckets. Um, a large selection of rice. We, and the rice, um, you know, you don't want to go crazy with brown rice because it doesn't last as long, but we do keep some brown rice. And then, you know, several hundred pounds of different, uh, white rices, basmati, regular white rice, jasmine rice, all these type of things can be bought a little bit at a time. You don't need to go out. And that's where I think maybe your husband is confused because he sees some of these ads where, you know, you have to go out and buy a year's supply at once. And hey, if you have the money, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not buying those powdered soup mixes. Because if you ever had to eat it, you're not going to enjoy it. So that's the key is getting a wide selection of foods that you actually eat. Don't buy them in a panic. Um, build up the things that go along with those foods because many people never take into consideration that, you know, rice and beans and oats and wheat and all these type of things, potato flakes, these are all generally ultra bland foods. And if you ever needed to use them, 
and they don't taste good and they're bland and your kids won't eat them, it makes the emergency or crisis that much worse. So the, the go-along items, like I just mentioned, the herbs, the sauces, all of those things help take bland commodity, you know, peasant foods and make them into, you know, delicious ethnic foods. For an example, Thai fried rice. In my course, Food Storage Feast, there's great, great examples of this because this is what the course is about, making those foods taste good with everyday items that you can keep in your pantry. Now, some of these sauces, I mean, they're not going to last 30 years, but who is preparing for 30 years down the road? I'm preparing for, you know, two weeks from now, from a year from now, two years from now, and those things easily last that long, and I rotate through them. Now, in addition to getting these items into your pantry, you have to know how to cook with them, and that's uh, why I think my course is such a great investment to make, is teach you how to use these foods, because when you have them all sitting in some corner room and you're not familiar with cooking with them, if you ever needed to do it, it's going to be a stretch, because, and everyone's a lot of people think, I know how to boil rice. Yeah, I know you probably do. You can probably make a bland bowl of rice and a bland bowl of oatmeal or beans. But if you had to cook from this stuff for a while, um, that's not going to make anybody happy. So it makes quite a bit of sense to cook from your pantry and learn how to make these foods taste good. And the other aspect before I leave you, Stephanie, is the financial one. Your husband wants to not put money towards this sex sector. If you cook from these type of foods, you know, even if you just bought a couple hundred dollars worth of beans and rice and the things that I talk about in my course and started to cook from them, you will save lots of money because I can tell everyone here there's 500 to to $1,000 a month sitting right in your pantry if you just cook with some of it. So that's what I'll leave you with. I hope you can um, talk to your husband and, and knock some sense into him because this is the time to buy some of these foods. And uh, my course has been discounted. It's $99 at foodstoragefeast.com. And I hope everybody has a terrific weekend and that the, uh, what do they call it? The bomb cyclone. I, I love how the weather channel comes up with these names to keep people. I mean, bomb cyclone, bomb cyclone. It's a snowstorm. Give me a break. But anyway, I hope you all, um, survived the bomb cyclone and thanks for supporting the survival podcast and also what I do over at Harvest Eating. Take care. Thank you. So. Let me try to be a little bit helpful on the resistance of the other spouse. This is how this is going to work. And it doesn't matter if it's food storage. It doesn't matter if it's prepared. It doesn't matter what it is. If one spouse goes to the other spouse and presents something as though it represents a shift in life, before that other spouse is open to it, they will resist it. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's, I think we need to pay off our debt. Oh, well, because, see, I, you don't have buy-in yet because we didn't have a discussion about the debt problem. And that means you're going to want me to do things differently. And it's human nature to not want to be pushed into change, especially if you read the other spouses doing something out of fear or something irrational. And it is the case that men far too often assume that females are being irrational. It just is. We, we, we screw that up all the time. Um, but you can sit there and be mad about it, or you can understand the system and work it. I, you know, I always said, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Right? So you can be right and happy, but if you push right first, you're probably not going to be happy. Okay? So let's talk about my approach to this as a whole for food storage. It's a holistic approach, 
And it begins with the concept of eat what you store and store what you eat. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you about your husband. If you have a whole st bunch of stuff that you eat that's storable, and you start buying two instead of one of a few things at a time, we call that copy canning, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a can, he's not even going to notice or care. He might notice now because you brought it up, but if you just... You know, you go to the store and you buy, let's say Keith was mentioning beans, and there's maybe two or three different varieties of beans that you buy frequently. And then you say, well, I'm just going to get two cans of this and three cans of that and three cans of that, when normally you would get one of each. And you just stick that in your pantry and start building it out. All of a sudden, a few months, three, four, five months into this, the pantry is built out with things that you actually use, and it becomes a convenience thing. And then all of a sudden, it seems like a good idea, and then so-and-so's on board, and then you can move from... And I, I think that's really the approach to take here. And I have taught for years to keep a food journal. This is just a cheap notebook that you can probably find one laying around that's not being used, and put it on your countertop. And every single time you feed your family something or eat something for the next month, write it in that food book what it was. And if it is a food that would store easily... Put a star next to it. And if you, you know, like this week you use something, and then next week you use it again, and it's already in there, instead of re-entering it, put a check mark next to the star. And then by the end of the month, find the items that are starred, and they go on the top of the list. And the more check marks they have, the higher on the list that they go. Because the biggest mistake I see people making when they start storing food is they start storing food, and you go, have you eaten Anything like this in the last six months? Well, no. Then don't store that first. We can get into long-term storage stuff and Mountain House and providing pantry and all that. That's all got a place. But the first thing is building out that pantry just like you asked and doing it with the food you actually eat. And it's almost impossible that you can actually have a legitimate objection from a spouse to, I just want two cans of this this week instead of one. See, it's a very reasonable, it's a very small thing. And it doesn't represent change in their life. But organize that pantry first and have a place for everything. That will make your life easier as you begin to build it out. And then you can point out at some point, like, we never run out of stuff anymore. And we need to keep an eye out for sales so we can save money on this stuff. And eventually you may get to the point where you don't have a complete buy-in, but he just doesn't give a damn. And I'll tell you what. I don't care if it's the man that wants to prep and the woman that doesn't or the woman that wants to prep and the man that doesn't. If you can at least get there, call it a win. Just call it a win and just keep going. You know, I, I prefer couples to be on the exact same page, but it ain't going to happen in everything because we're different people. You know, but if, if the old man doesn't give a shit that you keep the pantry full and that's what you want, remember, you can be happy or you can try to prove that you're right, I guess is a better way to put it, right? You can be happy and right, or you can try to prove that you're, you're right and be unhappy. That's often what happens in relationships. With that, let's take another one. I have one here on TMJ for Doc Bones. Oh, and I, before I bring Bones on, I almost forgot. Um, I have an episode that I've put in the show notes for you that, I, that gives my entire philosophy around food storage from a couple years ago. It's episode 1494, The Practical and Holistic Approach to Food Storage. I really advise you to listen to that because, again, I'm saying if you, if you take that approach, you're probably not going to get much resistance because there's not a lot to resist. Uh, again, now we'll hear from Doc Bones on TMJ. Hi, Joe Alden here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net and co-author of the survival medicine handbook, The Essential Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. 
Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Matt in Utah, who asks, I have a question for Dr. Bones. Do you have any recommendations for home remedies for TMJ pain? It started out of the blue a few months ago. I've been taking ibuprofen twice a day, but I know it isn't good for me long term. I don't mind if I need to see a doctor if I have to. If I can try some things at home first, that would be great. Thanks, Matt in Utah. Matt, TMJ or TMD, temporomandibular joint dysfunction, is a term referring to pain and other dysfunction of the jaw, the joint that connects the jaw to the skull, and the muscles that help you chew. Most people complain of pain, but tightness, strange noises, locking and popping when opening wide, and other symptoms may be present. It might be caused by a previous trauma, but in most cases, no one knows why one person has it and the next one doesn't. People who grind their teeth, who have anxiety issues, or suffer from arthritis might be at more risk than others. Women seem to get it slightly more than men, and most have it starting as young adults. Now, TMJ is not going to kill you, but it certainly can affect your quality of life. And there are medical treatments. Medical treatments involve pain meds like ibuprofen, something you've been using, but also muscle relaxants like Flexeril and anti-anxiety agents for those that need it. For those that grind their teeth, a clear plastic splint is used while sleeping to protect the teeth and the jaw joint. Warmer cold compresses might help. Certainly worth a shot. Some people believe a TENS unit, which gives electrical stimulation to the area, might work. You might apply some arnica to the area as well. Uh, other disciplines that are, are alternative and thought to have been successful in the past include things like acupuncture, hypnosis, and even chiropractic. However, despite all this, there's still no one treatment thought to be more effective than another for TMJ. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor and subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net. Also, our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour on Blog Talk Radio. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount on any of Nurse Amy's medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Oh, and Matt, you can also listen to the Survival Medicine Hour now on KYAH in your home state of Utah. I guess my addition to this would be, and you know, I'm not a doctor, I don't even play one on TV, and no, I'm not going to say put coffee on it, Um the the muscles that work the human jaw, I, I I could be wrong about this, but I believe that especially for the size are the most powerful muscles in the human body. Like the you, you, your quadricep might be stronger, but relative to size, the the because of bite force, and it's it's actually amazing the amount of bite force that a human being is capable of. When you think about the size of the actual muscles on the face, you know, et cetera. Um, it, which is why a lot of times things like crowns and stuff like that or implant teeth come out because the, the force is actually extreme uh, that we exert with a bite. If you've ever bit your tongue by accident, you, you know what I mean. It's, 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 it's shocking. And anytime you have a muscle with that much strength capability... Um, it has the. It also has the ability for that force to cause discomfort and pain to yourself. And one of the places that we really begin to tense up muscle-wise when we're under stress is in our facial muscles and our jaw. 
And I have found a case that most of, not all, because there's all different kinds of mechanical things that could be wrong that cause pain in this area. But many times, anyway, I should say, people that deal with TMJ are under stress. And if they reduce stress, they tend to reduce TMJ pain. So I would look into things like meditation, relaxation, evaluating your stress. How can you reduce your stress? Um, a lot of times this is exasperated at night while sleeping because you're sleeping and you're under stress. Uh, considering things like adrenal support supplementation uh, will be, often enables better restful sleep or something like a tryptophan or uh, another uh, thing that may be helpful with better rest is a, a small amount of melatonin or adding things in your diet that actually instead of because that, that's really not a good thing like dose yourself with tryptophan or you know melatonin unless you need to but things in your diet that will uh, stimulate the natural correct production of those things and anything you do to reduce stress is going to actually cause that to happen so I would just say evaluate the stress in your life because I personally have found that many people that have this issue have stress in their life and another thing you might look at is Um, some people that have this problem get a, ma a custom mouthpiece made that they sleep with. This prevents teeth grinding, etc., reduces stress and pain in that area. So those are my thoughts adding to that. Next up, I have a question on oil change intervals for Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. This question came in from Conrad, and he wants to know what's the best oil change interval to follow. He has got a 2011 Dodge 1500. His in-laws have a Chevy Suburban, and both of them have an oil quality monitoring system. This is different from another car that he had that just came on every 5,000 or so miles. So he's got four multiple guess answers on which one the best oil change service life is. The vehicle's own oil life determination system, the owner's manual based on mileage or months, the sticker up in the window, or the guy that says change your oil once a year. All right, this is a great question. Let's kind of work backwards. On the guy that says change it once a year no matter what, that's not my favorite one, except in one very certain scenario, and that's cars that aren't driven very much. My GTI is probably a great example of this because it may not see 5,000 miles in a year. It might, but it might not. So no matter what, I'm probably going to change that oil at least once a year. All right, next is the sticker up in the window. Okay, It really depends here, but that sticker is something someone just either hand wrote or more likely today punched numbers into a little machine and it spit out a sticker. This is the one that has the least amount of R&D and experience and expertise behind it. It is literally beep, boop, beep, boop, punching in numbers and it spits out a little sticker or again, handwritten. So if you're taking it somewhere that knows for sure this is what the mileage interval is supposed to be, It's okay, and that could actually mirror what the manufacturer recommends, but I can't tell you how many times, even at the dealership, we would run into these oil change stickers not having accurate mileage because some cars were 5,000 miles, some cars were 10, some cars back in the day had both, depending on which service it was. It was ridiculous, right? So I don't love that one either, but as I say that, I enjoy having the little sticker up in my windshield if I don't have a reminder. So like my Passat, for example, does have the sticker up in the window. All right, so next is the owner's book, and what does it tell us to do? Is it every 5,000 miles or six months, 10,000 miles or one year? That's not bad at all. Follow that. The manufacturer does 
do, at least I hope, a pretty good amount of research on what is the best interval for getting the oil service on this car. So I have no problem at all whatsoever with just straight up following the book and doing it when the book says. In fact, that makes it really easy oftentimes because it is every 5,000 miles, every 10,000 miles, depending on your vehicle. Most owner's books have a section where you can document when you do the service, which makes it almost idiot resistant to not do your services and properly document them. Now let's talk a little bit about the oil monitoring, oil life systems. Um, these are actually really sophisticated systems, much more than you would probably give it credit for. And the reason I like these systems is it takes into account everything. Okay, one of the negatives of the owner's book thing is that it's, it's blanket. Whether you live in Phoenix, Arizona, or Alaska, 5,000 miles, or six months, right? With the oil life monitoring systems, these take into account things like idle time, startup temperatures, and warm-up cycles, and distance, and time. It's this whole big giant algorithm that goes into figuring out what is the best for this particular time frame of this vehicle. And companies like Chevy have had this for a really long time, so they've gotten pretty good at this algorithm. And there's some really great resources online. BobIsTheOilGuy.com, I believe, is what it is. He talks about this stuff at, like at an engineering level that's way above my head, but if you really want to get nerdy about it, you can go there and check it out. In addition to that, you can always send your oil out to have it tested. If you're really, if you're really that concerned, you can send it out to get it tested. But I think these oil life monitoring systems, which are not actually just a simple sensor, they do use calculations from the vehicle's computer to figure out what the best service life is for the oil, which is probably why the indicator came on 4,000 miles after the sticker, because the sticker was written for, I don't know, 3,000 miles, and it could easily last to seven. So I guess what boils down to is, what would I do? Okay, if I had a car that had an oil life monitoring system, I would probably go somewhere in between the hard number of 5,000 miles or 10,000 miles, whatever it is, and what the indicator said. Just because it feels more comfortable to me to put a date on the calendar or know a specific mileage that my car services do. This might be a little bit early, and that's okay. I probably, if the indicator came on, the oil life indicator came on, I probably wouldn't go past it. I would probably do it then, but I would be leaning on the hard mileage, hard month, or the oil life indicator, whichever came first. This very well may result in you overchanging your oil from time to time, but I have to say that, guys, it's such cheap insurance to make sure your engine's running properly. 60 bucks a year, 50 bucks a year, 100 bucks a year into a 20, 30, 40, $60,000 piece of equipment that you need in your life to help make it run better for longer. It's not going to guarantee you're not going to have problems, but you can almost count on if you don't change your oil, you're going to have more problems than if you do change your oil. So a little over preventative maintenance, right? is something I would lean on versus pushing it till the absolute limit and hoping I don't have a problem. There's a portion of drivers that can push it to the limit, and that's just fine, and I have no problem with that. These are people that are way more into their car than I think the average driver would be. Now, on the oil life indicator, there is a couple of things that play into that that you need to be aware of. What a lot of times these don't account for is if you top the oil off. So if you have a leak or you're burning oil, you know, there could be some discrepancies in there. It's not a 
perfect system. From what I've seen, these indicators are pretty darn good. So again, if it were me, I would kind of walk the line between those two. While I don't think you need to change your oil every 3,000 miles, I do think that's considerably uh, overdoing it. If you told me, Charles, my oil change interval is 10,000 miles and I'm going to do it every five, I would probably give you the, uh, the old double thumbs up. Tell you that's exactly what I would do if I owned that engine as well. Again, it's cheap, cheap, cheap insurance to help keep your car running longer. And of course, make sure that you're checking your oil between services. This is, this is very basic stuff, but you don't want to just go that full 5,000, 10,000, 7,000 miles, whatever, without popping the hood and pulling the dipstick and making sure your level is good and there are no weirdness issues. The oil doesn't feel too weird or it doesn't smell burnt or something like that. You may have other issues as well. So good stuff from Conrad. I appreciate the questions that they send over. It's a nice add-on to the rest of the show. Guys, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. If you have questions or comments about oil life monitoring, go ahead and swing over to humblemechanic.com and leave it down in the episode about oil life monitoring. There should be a link on whatever podcasting platform you are using. Speaking of podcasting platforms, if you guys dig the show, head over to where you're listening to and leave it a review. If you think it's worth five stars, five nickels, five diamonds, whatever their rating system is, give it a five. I always appreciate that. If you think it's worth something else, that's cool too. Let me know what you think. I appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your day to do that for me. It really does mean a lot to me. You can also submit questions for shows like this by emailing me, charles at humblemechanic.com. Put question for Charles in the subject Please ask the question right at the top, then give me some space and give me the details. So it would say, hey, Charles, what do you think about oil life monitoring systems? Enter, enter, enter. My 2011 Dodge has an oil life monitoring system. That is the best way to ask a question, and it helps me out a ton to know the question before I read all the details. Not beating you guys up. It just makes it so much easier for me, which allows me to do more for you guys. All right, with that, guys, I'm out. Have an awesome weekend, and I will see you next time. Awesome stuff from Charles. We were very, very uh, lucky to have Charles as part of our community uh, and part of the expert council. Next up, I have a question for dealing with eczema for Gary Collins of the Primal Power Method. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of PrimalPowerMethod.com, where I discuss all things, and that was my dog yawning, if you heard that, where we discuss all things paleo, primal, living off the grid, life simplification, and just making our lives that much better. Um, and thanks to all you guys for buying my Amazon best-selling book, Going Off the Grid, and those grateful, I'm very grateful to those people who have reviewed it. Helps a lot. But today's question, eczema, in a young uh, eight-year-old daughter, Eczema is a tricky one, and uh, a lot more youngsters are suffering from it today due to our uh, continuing broken genetics and exposure to multitoxins, foods, and environmental factors. Um, it sounds like they've made some headway dealing with it. I would, as explained, they, they've used probiotics and saw that it helped in eliminating triggers. When it comes to eczema, Remember, it is a condition that comes from the, the outside, inside out and not the outside in. So that means you have to take care of it usually through diet. Now you can get it from exposure to things such as certain clothing, laundry detergents, soaps, but that's going to be a proliferation of, again, your broken, your immune system not working correctly from the inside out. 
So the biggest thing is identifying the triggers. That is key. I had pretty bad eczema as a kid myself, matter of fact. Now I think about it. If you can't figure out the triggers, it's going to be almost impossible to control. So what that means is with every flare-up, there's going to be something that causes that flare-up. What is it? And it could be multiple things at one time. Now, doing an elimination diet is definitely a good place to start. I would recommend they, they've they removed eggs and dairy, which are two big triggers in a lot of people, especially children with eczema. But also I would go full-blown paleo. I'd eliminate beans and grains. The gluten and grains can cause a definite immunological reaction, and it will proliferate itself through the skin. It is very common. If she suffers from headaches, burning, itching eyes, uh, you know, malaise, that is usually a gluten sensitivity. Uh, if she has those issues going along with it too, I would uh, look at that. I know you're going to go, what the heck do we feed our kid? Well, the diet's going to become very simple, and there's there's no way around it. You're going to have to do a strict elimination diet for two weeks to a month, preferably a month. Then once you add in that item that is a trigger, you're going to know it. Another way, as I've explained uh, on other answers, a way to figure out the trigger is to rub what you think could be the trigger it's almost like your own skin prick test like they did, uh, they do on your back for a food allergy test or allergy test in general is to rub it on her weak arm inside wrist. Do it for three nights before bed. And if that same kind of eczema or swelling occurs in that area, that tells you that's a trigger and you can do it with anything you can do it with a lotion, food, clothing item, uh, soap. Now, since it was on the back of her legs and that was where the flare-up is, and we're, we're in winter right now, so I know one doctor says it's seasonal. Eczema is not seasonal allergies. What it is is it will flare up during allergy season because of a weakened immune system. So it will, it will show more of its outward effects during allergy season because allergies, remember, usually are, again, a reaction to a weakened immune system. So... I would look at some soap, the soaps you're using. I would look at clothing items. There could be a clothing item that is setting her off and you just don't know it. With it being on the back of her legs, like I said, it could be a food item, but it also could be something she's in contact with. Uh, I know for me growing up, uh, I had terrible reactions to grass and certain grasses. If I laid on the grass, I would just burst into welts. So I would look at that too. As um, far as trying to treat it, a lot of the ointments and, and uh, you know, some of the steroidal creams, they don't really work when you're not addressing the trigger. So that's why a lot of creams tend not to work. And again, you're going from inside out, not outside in. One of the things I've found great success with, and I've used this on animals too, is Gold Bond medicated powder. I have had such good luck with the powder. The cream, not as much, but the powder for sure. And so I would try that powder out and see if it helps to curb the itching and the scratching because the more she scratches at it, the worse it's going to get. Um, I know it's hard. Kids, they love digging just like your dog gets a spot. They, they dig into it. But I would try that. And then... As far as creams are really, you know, I just haven't found anything that really works. 
you can play around with uh, with some light coconut oil. Don't put too much because what happens is if you put too much of an oily substance on an eczema outbreak, it actually tends to kind of proliferate it and lock it in because it, it, it seals the skin in that eczema area. You want it to also breathe. Um, so I hope that helps. It, it's tricky. Uh, like I said, you have to figure out what those triggers are. And allergy tests can be hit or miss. You know, the, the prick tests are the best ones. But the problem with that is it depends what they're using. So say they use cherry tomato. Well, you may have an intolerance to grape tomatoes. And it won't show up, or it will show up. And the other one will be the one you're – it goes all different ways. Uh, you can't test for every known food strain there is. So that's why I would recommend that weak hand inner wrist rub for three days. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to go to a doctor. It's straightforward. It will, it works. If, if she has an intolerance to that, or like I said, an item, if you think it's a clothing item, cut a little swatch off it, or just use the, the item and rub it right there and see what happens. Uh, hope that, again that helps. Everyone, uh, make sure to sign up for my updates at primalpowermethod.com. And also, if you have any questions, you can email me directly by filling out the form on my website. I guess my quick addition to that before I move on to my segment today is that I'm, I think this is one of the most powerful reasons to consider a paleo diet. Um, if you are happy with your weight, um, but you would like to feel better, it, it doesn't mean that you have to live on a paleo diet for the rest of your life. Going paleo, full on, full tilt, paleo, no exceptions for 30 to 60 days is a bit of an adjustment. But once it's over, if you, if you slowly integrate things back in, you'll know, because I think part of the problem we have is not everybody has eczema, right? That's a problem. That's, and that sounds great. What I, what I mean is not everybody that has issues that are dietary related are, are, are even capable of identifying them because they've had the issue so long. And if they're not a rash, if they're not puking your guts out, if they're not severe uh, gastric distress or something, if they are simply you, you, you don't feel as much energetic as you should, things like that, because you might have lit, you, you didn't go from being really full of energy overnight to where you are now, it took time. And there's a slow decline, a slow bleeding into it, so to say, and so that we adjust to that and we think of it as normal. So... I would challenge many of you to consider going paleo for 30 to 60 days and then just slowly adding things back in. Whether you need to lose weight or it doesn't matter. Just for the experience of, of, of having the ability to basically consider it a reset. It's like hitting a hard reset button to, okay, this is me at normal. This is, and, 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 and please understand, because I hear people, well, I tried paleo and it made me feel like shit. Well, how long did you do it? For like a week? Well, of course it did. Of course, you're detail, you're drug addict. You know, especially when you start talking about what do you eat? I eat potato chips and I mean bread every day, and you're a carbohydrate addict, and you're starting to burn fat cells, and you're releasing. Of course, you feel like shit. You got to get through that, you know. Um, but once you do, I think it can be life changing, and it's why I really recommend um, giving it a shot, even if you don't think, like I said, even if you don't think you need to, to lose weight. Um, 30, 60 days, and you decide. And I, you know what I haven't had anybody tell me? I did it consistently for at least 30 days, and, and, and screw you, Jack. You're an asshole. I shouldn't have. 
I I have yet to have anybody tell me that. Anyway, let's uh let's let's get into my segment today. I have a segment today that it's kind of self-directed, I guess. Um I have made a commitment because so many in this audience are involved in cryptocurrency that I pretty much tell you what I'm doing most of the time anyway. Because I, I think that given you've made decisions on my past statements, it's unfair for me not to tell you what I'm doing currently. As always, this is not investment advice. I'm not telling you to go out and buy either of these currencies, but I do want to make you aware of them so you can make decisions for yourself. Let's start out with the one that I am a little less uh, bullish on, but I do think it warrants looking at, and I do think there is some let's say, short to midterm return to be made on this one uh, fairly well. It is called WAX. It is a Ethereum token, Ethereum-based token, and it is designed to be used in the gaming marketplace, but not only for betting on games and stuff. It's for the purchase of what are called digital assets. What is a digital asset? I think they're stupid, Okay. I think it's the most asinine thing I have ever heard of. But I'm not going to argue with 400 million people that spend their money on something. 400 million is the size of the community that, that engages in the buy, sell, and trade of digital assets for video games. What would that be? That would be like, I don't know, a, 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 a shirt that your character can wear, a pig mask was one of the ones I looked at, a sword, all these different things. People build hacks and, and things for these games that these people play. And they sell them on marketplaces. There's a marketplace called Opskins. It's, it's, as far as I know, and I'm not a gamer, but as far as I know from my research, the, the biggest marketplace for the sale of these digital assets, and it was built by a group who first built a different marketplace and then built this one as a better one. And, and millions of dollars trade every day on people buying shit like CryptoKitties, okay? And, and, and these other gaming things. And this is like, think of it like it's the eBay of the, that type of thing. Anybody there can go set up an account as a creator and put out their things and sell it. Well, the people that built Opskin's site, that already have a platform that works and functions and has lots of money going through it, decided to do an ICO or initial coin offering for a, a, a token they decided to call WAX. And they did that uh, earlier this year, or earlier last year, I should say, late last year. And it is now available on some, not all exchanges. It's not on the bigger exchanges, which I see as an advantage right now, okay? Because it's harder to buy, and yet this token's done fairly well, trading in the $1.50 to $2 and, you know, 25 cent range, and has been uh, much higher during the ICO when people got overboard on it to $2.50, which shows the excitement that it can generate, and recently has been as high as like $2.30. Um, What I like about it, it has an ecosystem to function in that is functioning already. It works. You can use it. You can buy shit with it, and people are using it. It's trading at a reasonable volume considering it is only in like the secondary exchange. It's not on Bittrex. It's not on Binance, right? Uh, it's in the secondary exchange market right now, and it's still doing around $15 million of volume a day. That's significant. It has a market cap of about $911 million. For something that came on the board, you know, not that long ago, that's significant. A lot of it is changing hands. It is being used. And it's hard to get it. You have to want it. 
So I ended up using the exchange called Huawei, I think is how you pronounce it, to, to, uh, to buy it. They let me set my account up. Like a lot of exchanges right now are closed. You can't even get in them. They're not taking new members. They were open. I went in. I set it up. It was easy. They, they let me set it up. And then I threw some Bitcoin in there, and I bought some wax tokens. And uh, then I tried to transfer them out to a wallet, and they wouldn't let me. And I had to upload my driver's license and do some two-factor authentication and stuff like that. So I'm going to recommend if you use that exchange, you get all of that done before you buy anything. Because they'll let you put money in there, but for security, they won't let you take it out until those things are done. Basically, know your customer type uh, restrictions. Okay? So that's what it took. Now, it is not in well-known exchanges, but it's somewhere that people that are developing tokens all and, and coins always want to be. It is in the Jack's wallet. So I know what you're thinking. Jack, you fool, why didn't you shapeshift it? It is not supported by shapeshift yet. But it if it's in Jack's, there has to be a plan to do that, or Jack's probably wouldn't have it. And Jax is one of the better wallet, wallet makers out there for a multi-currency wallet. Um, one of the most popular. So it, it already has a home in Jax, which I think is a good indicator of long-term. What I don't like about it, it is very niche. Like, sure, you could trade it. I mean, I would, if you wanted to pay me in Wax right now, I would take it. There's nothing that prevents people from transferring it from one wallet to another or one address to another. But it really is built for that ecosystem. And therefore, it has some limitation there. Now, again, the number of people worldwide that trade those assets is greater than the number of people in the United States. So I think that the niche can be a strength there. The other thing I don't like about it, when I look for currencies to play long, I look for currencies and tokens with reasonable caps on volume. You know, one of the things I love about Bitcoin is 21 million Bitcoins ever. This creates a scarcity in the asset and allows for a reasonable market cap with a high individual price. This is, this is you can use this financial analysis of many things, including stocks. All right, um, but this has a circulating supply of 492 million wax with an eventual supply of 1.8 billion. So that does place an upward limit on how much market cap can drive the individual thing. Because the market cap is simply the total supply times the price. That's market capitalization. That's that's how you do it. GE stock, you take the total number of shares issued, you multiply it by the price per share, and you get the market capitalization, the total amount of money currently held in GE stock. right? So what that tells you is the more shares, the, more, the higher the market cap has to go to move each unit a little higher. So I, I'm not in love with that. That said, you've got a token with an ecosystem that works, that is trading in volume, that is being used, and you have a platform not to be built in two years, a platform that exists now. I believe that they will, like their, their main push now, they, they, they don't have to build a platform. They can just keep improving the platform they already have that they're earning their living from. I mean, that's the other thing. The people behind this token make their living from the platform they integrated the token into. They have an incentive to keep building their own company. That makes perfect sense. Video game users are quick to adopt this type of technology and want to own cryptocurrencies. They're the, I mean, some of the first miners were guys that figured out their GPU cards would do it. This is a great place to be. And their push is on marketing from everything I can see. That is primarily about getting into major exchanges. 
I can't see how this currency, based on its volume, based on what it is, based on the fact that it's legitimate, will not, within the next th three to six months, get into some major exchanges like Bittrex, etc. Once this is in a major exchange, I would be absolutely shocked if it didn't hit somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 fairly soon. And fairly soon could be a month to 10 months after that. Okay? Um, so I don't know that this is your next, this isn't going to be something that moons, right? As, as the cryptocurrency dreamers always think, oh, I'm going to buy three Lambos, that kind of stupid shit. But I see this as a relatively good midterm play at a very low cost of entry right now that can be turned into, you know, from hundreds to thousands of dollars over some time. But this, I mean, always risk current, you know, risk capital only in cryptocurrency. So if you wouldn't gamble with it, don't put it in cryptocurrency. Um, though it is safer than gambling if you use your brains. Because when you put money on the blackjack table and you lose, you lose it all. When you put money into a cryptocurrency, it goes down, you lose what it went down. Okay? There's a big difference there. Um, so, but this would be higher risk. This would be your risk portion of your risk portfolio. Okay? Now, the next one I'm actually a, a lot more stoked about. It's called ARC. And I learned about this. I just did a video that I'll put a link in the show notes to basically saying there's an altcoin bloodbath coming. There's a major correction in the market. And I posted it. I made the mistake of posting it to the cryptocurrency collectors group on Facebook that I'm a member of and was told I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about. While the correction was happening, I put out a post the day before the video saying this shit has got to correct and I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm calling for the end of the world and the apocalypse And I'm saying all the currencies are going to go away and there's going to be no altcoins left next week. I don't know what these people heard or read, but what I simply said is everything, and they said, I said everything under 10 bucks is up at a ridiculous level through December. I was told that's not true. The next day I made a video showing it. The correction was in progress. You could see from the day I made the post to the video, as I was pulling the charts up, you could see massive drops, like 20, 30% drops in all of these, you know, random second, third tier coins. And one guy in that thread said, well, at least you didn't say ARK's going to, you know, ARK's going to drop. And I, I looked at ARK and I said, well, the technical analysis I have of this without knowing anything about it is far more stable than just about everything else here. It had this, didn't have this hockey stick. Every, all these shit coins have these hockey sticks in December. I mean, coins that, coins that haven't been touched for three years. Like the development team that was behind it, like they all went off to do something else. And the website's just sitting there. Some of them, the website, they, they can't even keep their website up. They can't, they can't afford the domain name or whatever anymore. And the, 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 the coin didn't even have a website and it's gone up, you know, three, four, five, six times in December. And when they're all like that, you can't have that uniformity of a bull market and be sustainable. So this is going to correct. Well, this guy comes in, and when he mentions ARC, I just look at the, the like, no concern for the currency itself. What are the fundamentals? And it had this really strong, slower growth right through this period. But everything else is, like, just exponentially going up. It just has this beautiful triangle in a fundamental analysis of a long projected up curve. So then I look at it on some of the things that I look for, and the total supply ever, 129 million. Now, this isn't the you know, completely deflationary model of like a Bitcoin, but that's not a billion. It's not hundreds of millions. It's 129 million with a circulating supply of about 97 million. For an asset price at about eight bucks, there is plenty of room 
in the market cap to go up from there with a current market cap right now of $855 million. A 24-hour volume of about $12 million exchanged, and it's being used. Then I looked at, well, what does it do? It is basically designed to be kind of like a super coin, designed to empower other coins and to link other blockchains. And they have an incredibly active development team. They are doing stuff. They're not talking about doing stuff. They're not just talking about timelines. They have said these are the, like, they set those uh, objectives this year. And you can see objective set, objective met, objective set, objective met. I like that. They have a large team. And on top of it, they are what's called a designated proof of stake. This is kind of like mining without mining. You put up your currency and you elect a delegate. There's 50 delegates to pick from that vote on proposals. And it costs you one arc, or eight bucks roughly right now, to vote for that delegate. And if you want to unvote, you have to use another arc out. So the rest of your arcs, you can spend, you can do whatever you want to with. But as long as they're in your arc wallet, which I'll talk about in a second, um, you earn a return on them. And if you were to have, let's say, a thousand arc, you would earn about two arc a week just for leaving your money sitting in your wallet. It's more complicated than that. I can't turn this whole show into why I love ARC, and I don't want to, but these are some basic things. I am not saying, I can't say this strongly enough, I am not saying go out and buy ARC tomorrow or today. I am going to tell you this. I had two positions in some very low-priced things that went way up. They were Ripple and Eon, which I've talked about both of those before. And when I saw this spike, I went, that's it. These things are going to correct. And I dumped them, and I took the, the profits from those, and I went into ARC with a position of about 400 units, and my goal is to, is to take other positions and make some moves and get into a position of at least 1,000 ARC. I am long on ARC, okay? Um, and I'll tell you right now, my portfolio is mostly weighted in Ethereum. I did very well converting Bitcoin to Ethereum when Ethereum was really low, And I have a huge portion of my crypto wealth in Ethereum, a significant portion in Bitcoin, and then spread out through other things like a little bit of Dash, probably not as much as I should have. I should have had more, uh, but I made some decisions to go elsewhere. Zcash, I'm currently mining Zencash. Um, I think these are solid privacy coins, and I think that's another segment of the market that I want to have a position in. Uh, but the concept of being able to get into a currency like this with the story, the team, the background, the community, the involvement, um, and it works. Next is the wallet. I am so sick. I mean, I am sick of seeing companies where they're going to change the world and they don't even have their own damn wallet for their coin. Or the wallet they have is just like you have to be a computer scientist to use it. Or they have a decent wallet, but it's because they hacked somebody else's wallet and forked it. Or they have a decent wallet because because somebody built them one that's not even part of their team because they couldn't stand the fact that they didn't have a decent one. Like, if you're going to go into the token coin world, you should have a decent wallet. ARK has one. You download it, and it, it's intuitive, and it works. And if you want to um, stake your, your ARK, uh, there's a link I'll put in the show notes today of how to do that that tells you exactly what to do. And it's easy. The only thing you'll have to do is figure out which delegate you want to pick. And uh, I'm not going to say it on the air, but if you want to know the one I picked, I will tell you if you email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, I am not 
saying go deep into these two. Uh, I picked up a little bit of wax. Uh, I don't even remember how much. Um, honestly, I can you give me a second. I'll pause it and I'll tell you. A little over 300 units. Um, so it's a on, a on a something that's you know a buck something. It's it's a relatively low play, um, but I again I would be totally surprised if they get into a major exchange that they didn't go to about 10 bucks. I, I really just because of the story, the market, everything. Uh, and then Arc again. I'm I'm sitting with a little less than 400 right now, but I have some positions. I will be exiting on some other things, and uh, some other things that are going on that will I will probably push that position up to about a thousand units, uh, which you know at current price you're talking about 8,700 bucks. But I have seen currencies like this before, where you have opportunities like this, and with proof of stake or master nodes and all, and then the cost of getting into the same position continuously goes up over time. I think this is going to be one of the real success stories of 2018. But again, please do your own analysis. Don't do shit just because Jack Spirico said he did it. But I want to be forthcoming and honest because, you know what, one of these days I'm going to pick one completely wrong, and I want to be just as honest with you when I get one wrong as all the ones that I've gotten right. Now, you, you want to know just for, you know, I mentioned I just exited Ripple and Eon, but I recommend both of those. Here's what I'm holding. I'm holding Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, Zcash, Wax, ARK, Bayesian Attention Tokens, um, Zencash, and Swarm City Tokens. I think with the exception of Zencash, I've recommended all of those on the air, and if you look at over the last year, all of them were really good places to put your money. Zencash um, was something that I kind of picked up on in the last few months, Added a small position there, and, and right now I actually had Ben, even though we've been mining Zcash, turn my rigs to mine Zencash because I think there's some opportunity there right now. Uh, so that's a pretty solid track record. And because uh, some Bitcoin gold, too, I mentioned. So Bitcoin Cash and gold, I didn't buy either one. I just simply have them from the forks. And uh, I am actually thinking about exiting my Bitcoin gold positions pretty soon and using those toward some other things, but one would be increasing my, uh, my holdings of ARC. This designated proof of stake where you are paid simply to hold currency. This makes a lot of sense and it creates a hold mentality. One of the reasons that Bitcoin has done so well isn't just the shorter supply. It's the unwillingness of people to let go of it. Now, if you really want to make people unwilling to let go of something, pay them to keep it. You see what I'm saying? All right? it's like comp and then it becomes like compounding interest. Now, that doesn't mean you can't lose. I, one more time, guys, I'm not saying to do this. I'm telling you what I've done, and I'm telling you you might want to look at it. You also want to look at my video, and if you go into Cryptocurrency Collectors Club on Facebook, if they'll let you in, and you look at the comments on that, it is, it is freaking laughable. It is laughable. The number of people telling me that basically I'm, I'm screaming gloom and doom and apocalypse and the end of the world when I use the words major correction coming, Don't bail out or freak out, but this is a time to consider taking some profits and having the capital available for the opportunity that will soon present itself. I, I, I feel like I'm talking, like at times, like these should be intelligent people, but I feel like I'm talking to crayon-eating, helmet-wearing idiots. I, I just, I, I, I don't know, right? I have a pretty good track record in this, and uh, I think if you watch the video, you'll see the case that I'm making. And just real quick, the, the reason I did that video and that post was I was looking for my next cherry picks. I find these things, and I cherry pick them, and then I take a position in them. 
And I look for ones that I can take that long position in. And as I was doing analysis, which was basically sorting things by, I don't want a billion tokens out there, right? And I'm looking for like these positions that are at the right price, the right place in there, and have the story and all. I noticed that everything I looked at just had the same hockey stick in it. And once you see that, you know that is not sustainable. So anyway, with that, let me remind you one of the ways you can help support this show, if you like the work that we do and the education that we provide, is to uh, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I got a great item for you of review today at tspaz.com. It is the AA to size D battery adapters. What the hell is that and why do you need one? So these are little plastic thingies. And what you do is you chunk two AA's in them and close them up, and then they are the size of a D battery, and you put it into a D battery device, and it runs your, let's say, D-cell mag light with two AA's. Now, why would you want to do that? You do not have, flat out, do not have the capacity, right, the total amount of fuel in the tank to run your D-cell mag light with, let's say if it's a 3D-cell, with, uh, with six AA's that you would with three D-cells. So why would you want this? Well, because most of you, and if you're not doing this, you probably should consider it, probably have um, the AA and loop batteries and maybe AAAs and the PowerX Smart Charger that Stephen Harris has recommended many years ago. To this day, it's still the best investment I think you can make in backup power. So we have our little recharger, we put our AA batteries in it, and we use those AA batteries. We don't just like leave them in there. You know, you, you, also, you just start using them in your remote controls, and anything uses AA batteries. And every time they are dead, you take them out, put them in, and take new ones back out. And that way you're actually using what you prepare with. And you're making your life better. And you become familiar with your backup power solution because it's your primary power solution for those devices. And AA's and, tri and AAA's are the best bang for the buck in that market. And D battery, rechargeable D batteries, just are not a good investment in my opinion. We generally don't use them often enough, They're not, and they cost more, and it just, it just doesn't make sense. So what this does is should you end up in like a week-long blackout, you know, and you've got your inverter for your car, don't you? You have a little 800-watt Whistler inverter or something like that, don't you? Well, with that and your AA battery charger and some extension cords and adapters, you can keep your refrigerator cool enough, often enough to, to, to not lose your food during that time. You can recharge all the things you want, run small devices, run a small TV set, and you can have unlimited AA batteries. Just You'll never run out of the ability to charge AA batteries. So now when you need that D-cell mag light because you're going out to check on something in the middle of the night and you want more power, you just pop them into your case, boom, and off you go. And all of this flexibility for 8 bucks for a set of 8. They're about a dollar a piece. That's why I recommend them. You find great recommendations for your preparedness lifestyle and your lifestyle in general where tspaz.com and remember I've got everything now at tspaz.com broken out into categories every review I've ever done you can look at the individual categories and page through and find the things I recommend and if you're looking for something in your life I don't care what it doesn't have to be directly preparedness related and you're not sure what to buy email me and ask me and if you talk like I get emails like this every week and I'm telling you there are people this is my response I'm sorry I don't use that, I don't know that, and I can't really give you honest advice there. And it, it doesn't interest me enough to find out. Like, somebody asked me about a watch. I haven't worn a watch since the mid-90s. The day I got a cell phone and there was a, a clock on it, I stopped wearing watches. Uh, so I can't give you a fair recommendation. So if I can't, I'll tell you that. But if I can, or if it's something I want to learn, I will research it, I will find it, I will make it an item of the day. Or if you have an item to suggest, send it in. And again, as always, my reviews... I think I'm the only person on, on the Internet 
that can honestly say this, that does Amazon reviews for a significant income. If it's on one of my reviews, I probably own it. 99% I own it, and it wasn't given to me. I spent my own money on it. So when you make a request like that, if it's something I can add in, into my life, I will not only research it, find it, I will then spend my money on it and try it, and then after that, I will put it out. That's the recommendations you get from me, and if there's somebody that's out there doing it, tell me who they are, because I'd like to know. Right now, I think I'm the only one. tspaz.com is where you get all that information. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. The song of the day is called The Violence by Rise Against, and... Uh, Not my exact kind of music, but I really like this song, and I really like the message behind it, specifically one piece of it. Let me give you some of the lyrics here. Dancing on the crumbling precipice, the rocks are coming loose just at the edge. Are we laughing? Are we crying? Are we drowning? Are we dead? Or was it all a dream? The bombs are getting closer every day. That can never happen here, we used to say. Have these wars come to our doorstep? Has this moment finally come, or was it all a dream? And then this is, this is the chorus, and this is what I love best about this song, because the question is so key, and I think most would just wash past it listening to the song. Are we not good enough? Are we not brave enough? Is the violence in our nature just the image of our maker? Are we not good enough? Are we not brave enough to become something greater than the violence in our nature. Are we not good enough, good enough, or was it all a dream? The one that hits me the hardest in that chorus, are we not brave enough? Are we not brave enough? It's a legitimate question. And I think it shows one of the problems we have with such a culture of violence and a belief that we're always right no matter who we bomb, how, matter how we bomb them or how often we do so. We have been convinced that bravery and violence go together. That the brave are those who do the violence. We idolize the guy, the Rambo character in the movies. The diehard character in the movies. And I'm not putting those movies, I like movies like that, but they do have an impact on the culture, especially if you're unaware of the impact. Where what really takes bravery is to not do violence. What really takes bravery is to, in the words of you know John Lennon, give peace a chance. That's what takes bravery. To look at the potential enemy and not immediately strike and make the attempt at reconciliation when you know you could get hurt. And this is true not just in dropping bombs. This would be true in a potential conflict on the street where it's just fisticuffs. But this is true in a relationship, in a family, where the damage or the pain is emotional. You have to be brave to not strike the other when you know they could strike you. And to only act in defense is one of the most brave stances we can take. This is what we should be teaching our culture. The bravery of being well willing to rise above our nature of violence. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, wishing you a great weekend and hoping I helped you figure out once again how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dancing on the crumbling precipice, 